Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It is the 14th of December 2020. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is our last podcast of the year. Uh, we do this every year where we have a, a bit of a break over Christmas and New Year, recharge, come back in January. So you can expect the next episode to drop. Um, I'm not sure. It might not be the, probably not the first Monday of January, the second Monday of January. Uh, so to this show, we have an amazing conversation with three incredible women uh, based in the States, Catherine, Caroline, and Louisa. Uh, each of them are going to introduce themselves at the start and tell you a little bit about their background. But essentially, they are undertaking this amazing uh, project to create this documentary and raise awareness of the problem of feral horses in the US. Now, I'm not even going to say any more than that. Um, it's a really big problem. There's a lot of parallels with this. Don't think that this is just a, a US issue. Well, the actual issue is a US issue, but the lessons that can be learned from it in terms of wildlife management are applicable to so many things around the world. Um, so I think you'll be able to draw a lot of parallels depending on you know, what country you live in from this story. It's it's really fascinating. It was great to have three people, so four of us in total, on the show, um, but you're going to hear all about that, so I'm not going to give you any more in, uh, information in the intro. Uh, but before we kick into that, as always, I need to say a massive thank you to all of the Patreon supporters. Uh, and in the top tier this week are Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RDContracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Galax Clothing, the team at Galax Clothing. What a really long top tier list. Thank you so much, all of you. And thank you so much, everyone else who's contributes in all the other uh, lower tiers. Uh, it makes a massive difference. And it was nice to end 2020 with the most patrons that we've ever had. So that made me feel good. I sometimes forget to remind you all, but if you are a podcast listener, you get 15% off any of the publications on the Modern Huntsman shop. So if you head over to modernhuntsman.com, who are our partners on this podcast, you can have a look at volumes one through to six. Six is shipping now as this podcast goes out. Volume six is shipping. Uh, you can get 15% off just by using the promo code into the wilderness as simple as that. There is also a whole heap of cool products on there right now uh, that they've released with the gift guide. There's um, a collaboration coffee. That's one of the coolest things uh, that's been released in, in the last two weeks and a whole bunch of other things. Good. Definitely go and check out. There's not a lot of time now between, uh, between when this podcast goes live and Christmas, but there is time to get anything that's on the shop to you before Christmas. So head over to modernhuntsman.com, click the shop, and have a look at all the cool gear that's on there, as well as the publications one through to six. I really hope that you all enjoy this really energetic and, and, and fascinating conversation between the four of us, and I look forward to joining you all again in January. Everybody, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. This is this is a rare treat because I have not one guest, not two guests, but three guests. I've got Catherine, Caroline, and Louisa 
all on the line, all going to be speaking to me about this incredible project that you guys are involved in. Uh, but before we get to that, I think probably because there are so many of you, uh, it's worth just giving a little intro, like who wh who are each of you? And uh, just tell me just a little brief bit about your background before we talk about this very cool documentary and, and actually a, a very interesting uh, conservation conundrum that's currently in the US. Great. Um, I can, um, I can um, go. Oh, <laughs> you go, you go, Bush. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it's hard because we all can't see each other, so we don't know who's about to talk. Uh, but my name is Caroline. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles and I currently live there still. I started riding when I was five years old and I'm still riding now. Uh, I met Catherine and Louisa out in Wyoming on a dude ranch that we all worked at together. And I still live in LA and I'm an artist there and working on some fun projects like this one. That's cool. Do you have a studio in LA? I do. It's Luckily, it's uh, an old converted garage in my backyard, which is really lucky. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. So, um, Catherine, yeah. what about you? Um, so, my name is Catherine Boucher. I um, grew up in Vermont and that's where I am right now. Um, and I started riding when I was about nine at a summer camp and I kind of just never stopped. Um, and like Caroline said, I, I met Caroline and Louisa at a ranch in Wyoming. Um, and that's actually where I still work. I'm the head wrangler for this guest ranch. Um, and yeah, and I'm involved in this really great project with the two of them. So um, there's going to be a couple of times where I'm going to have to ask you guys just to like expand on things which you think are very obvious because although uh, we have a lot of listeners in the US, I think probably about half the people who listen to this podcast are in the US, everyone else is in the rest of the world and also they might, although they're, they're probably, in, well, I don't think you'd be listening to this podcast if you weren't intrigued in the great outdoors, but they might not be horsey people. So when you say head wrangler, what, do you, what are you referring to there? Yeah, um, so I run the riding program for a guest ranch. Um, um, so basically, um, manage the riding program, um, for a ranch where people come and stay for a week, um, and basically go out on trail rides, um, while they're there. Oh, fun. And, uh, Louisa, what about yourself? Um, my name's Louisa Banky and I'm currently in Durango, Colorado. Um, but I grew up in Massachusetts on the East coast. I started riding horses uh, when I was eight years old, and I just graduated college um, in Durango with an outdoor education degree. Um, so I'm also very passionate about backcountry skiing, rock climbing, fly fishing. Um, I, oh, I love, love it. being in the outdoors, but I also really love riding horses. So clearly all have a passion for the outdoors, all have a passion for horses, Explain to me this project because this was uh, when you reached out. I can't remember who it was that actually. I think was it you, Catherine, that reached out to yeah, me originally. Yeah. Yeah. How did you? Interesting question. I mean, how did you come by the podcast? Was it through? I know that you're a reader of Modern Huntsman. Was it through them? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, I was just looking on all over their website. I, was, I had ordered the. Um, I think it was the second volume. It was the the public lands volume because of the wild horses okay. in it. Um, uh, of course, of course. <laughs> Which I thought was a great article. It was really different from everything that um, ha that I've seen about the wild horse problem. Um, but, anyways, I was looking through the website and found the podcast and started listening and thought, "Hey, it'd be really cool if we could talk with Byron." 
Yeah, absolutely. This is really interesting because it's a topic that I didn't know really anything about that I've been educated on through well through that article that you're referring to, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, Charles Post wrote. And he has since put out um, a film, I might butcher the title, I think it's uh, Horse Rich, Dirt Poor, uh, and which kind of covers the topic. And I know that you've mentioned in other interviews and stuff, you know, some of the inspiration is the that quite well-known documentary called Unbranded. But um, tell me, I don't know who's going to kick off on this, but t- tell me about this project that you are all involved in and, and, and pushing for. And then we can maybe dig into the details of what the issues are with wild horses in the US and what the what the history is is there but what was it that drove you to to want to kickstart this this project which is ultimately going to be an amazing journey and a documentary which i think if i'm not mistaken should have been done this year but i guess like everybody else covid has ruined your plans <laughs> you say you want to take this sure or lisa yeah, I can talk. Um, yeah, so we it was supposed to be this year, um, which we were really sad to put it off for a year, but um, it actually worked out really well. It just gave us more time to plan and get things together. Um, but the project itself, um, I guess the way that it started was that Louisa came to me um, when she was working at the ranch one summer, um, and she said, you know, I have this great idea. I think we should do sort of what unbranded did but like a female version of it and she said do you want to come and I was like well yeah of course that sounds awesome like let's do a big pack trip and um talk about the Mustang issue so that's kind of how it started um and then that same summer Caroline came to visit the ranch um later on and and we sort of invited her to come along too so that's how we all got together um and the the project itself um we decided to do, uh, we're doing a 40 day pack trip. Um, and we'll be riding through Southern Wyoming and Northern Colorado. Um, and we will be adopting 11 Mustangs, um, in May and riding them, um, on this journey. And then we'll be, um, filming it and making a documentary to sort of talk about the, the Mustang problem. Um, but trying to keep it as unbiased as possible. I think there's so much emotion behind the the Mustang issue. So we're just trying to keep it more, more factual rather than, um, you know, one, one sided one way or the other. Cool. So, uh, so this, the, the journey is a way for you to, to tell the story in a way that possibly hasn't been told before, but can, can someone maybe just backtrack a bit here and give us background on what the wild horse issue is in the U S and, and why this is such a, a controversial, um, topic. Sure. Um, it is so interesting because it is um, multifaceted. Uh, basically, wild horses are, uh, their population is doubling every year. Um, and the U.S. government doesn't really know what to do with all of these horses that are um, on rangelands or on BLM land. Um, so what they're doing is rounding them up and putting them in holding facilities, which are basically where these horses are just sitting in big fences together um, and, you know, not being used for anything. Or there's adoptions also where we'll get our Mustangs, um, where people can look at horses and adopt them, but it's a little bit less common. And then on top of that, you have 
other um, groups of people, including, you know, ranchers and animal rights activists, uh, kind of going at the issue in different ways. Like ranchers are concerned because Mustangs are competing with their livestock and they um, make a living off of, you know, selling beef. Um, and they're having a tough time having Mustangs coming in, grazing on their lands and drinking their livestock's water. And then you also have these animal rights activists that, um, you know, are really concerned that horses are going to slaughter, um, and, but they don't see the full issue of the Mustangs because there's just, since they're overpopulating, they're taking resources. Um, but they're, it's also interesting because they're a symbol of America, you know, they're, um, so they're introduced so early on, um, so there's a controversy between is it an animal that we um, protect and we, um, you know, it, we protect the spirit of the Mustang, but at the same time, they're also rounding them up and putting them in holding facilities, which seems a little bit disrespectful. So it's kind of a double-edged sword um, with a lot of different groups with different opinions, a lot of emotions. And honestly, I don't even, the more I read about it, I don't even know where I stand on the whole thing. It's very It's a real, yeah, it looks very complicated. And it's a really interesting thing because my understanding of, of Mustangs in the US is that you had wild horses there historically going way back, tens of thousands of years, but then they were basically wiped out and then they were reintroduced by the Spanish. So, they're not, I mean, they, it goes back so far that they're classed as native, but really they're not, although there were native horses there. With any other overpopulation of animals, there is, particularly in the US, where there's a, a big uh, culture of uh, wildlife management through hunting activities, they would simply be managed by taking a surplus and leaving a certain amount to carry on breeding and, and proliferate in the species, but at a level where it wasn't negatively impacting the habitat for other wildlife. Because although you mentioned ranches there, I know that in some instances, it's it's not just about this competition with people and our use of the land. It's also a competition with other wildlife that lives in, in the same areas. But I guess with horses, it's a, diff it's, a, it's a difficult one because most people see them as, as purely a domestic animal. So this idea that we would... Uh, um, round up a whole bunch of them and then just you know send them to slaughter to manage the population that way I guess is very uncomfortable for a lot of people that's actually something you brought up uh, management of other wildlife and that's something that I personally think about a lot and I don't really know the answer to this question but I think it's really interesting how in America, we are really used to the idea of having hunting permits given out as a way to sustainably manage wildlife populations. So there are hunters who will say like, oh, hunting deer is great for the environment and for the population of deer because it keeps things in check. Uh, but these same people, a lot of them would have a really big hesitation with hunting a wild horse. And I think yeah. a lot of that, yeah, yeah it's you can't, it just doesn't really sit right with a lot of us, which is really cultural because a lot of other cultures do eat horse meat. Yeah, the and, French love it. Yeah, and I personally don't eat meat, so I'm like, you know, 
no thanks for any of it. But for me, I also don't see how, you know, we, we make such a big cultural deal out of, oh my God, it's a horse. It's so beautiful. But, you know, you, you could technically say the same about it's a deer. It's so beautiful running free, right? And yet there's this really strong aversion to hunting a wild horse, which I think puts us in a difficult place because that's potentially a way of managing this population problem. And yet it's really unpopular to talk about, which I don't really know the answer, but I just think it's interesting to think about the dynamics kind of, of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And why we look at different animals differently. Yeah, it's that that cultural element of it is fascinating mm-hmm. because you, I mean, I've eaten horse before when I've been in different countries where it's, I mean, you see it on the menu in some right. places and it's it's not a big deal at all. Right. Um, I, I can't imagine anybody that I know who would want to go and hunt a wild horse, but I, I understand it, but equally, I almost wonder whether it could be seen as more, more of an, an opportunity to just provide protein mm-hmm. and utilize it as a wild food source, maybe not through hunting, but in a more kind of managed sort of semi-wild agricultural way, like they have been doing with, with rounding them up. And then I, I don't know what happens to all those horses that are being they're essentially being put down are they being eaten or turned into pet food or they there was a period of time where they were turned into dog food most often uh but then activists got really upset about that and there's now some rules in place that limit the amount that you can buy slash adopt at a time so that it kind of discourages people from just taking them directly to slaughter but you know i mean there's a lot of controversy about that too because some people say that it's still happening um, some people say that it should happen because maybe death is better than just standing around in this filthy pen for the rest of your life. You know, if you're a wild animal, is it more of a humane end to your life to just end it? Or should it be dragged out standing around in a small pen, you know, not able to run or do anything wild? And again, I don't know the answer, but yeah. I guess it's because there, and I know you 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 talk about this in the in the short sort of showreel uh, for the project that you're all involved in, is they're seen as an, an icon, particularly an icon of the West. And this idea of how could you treat an American icon like that, I guess goes to a lot of the the root as to why people feel uncomfortable about it. But ultimately, there needs to be some sort of a solution, but for decades now, no one seems to have come up with a solution. I saw a crazy number. I think it was on your website that there would be was it half a million? Yeah. By 2030? There's currently 95,000 just roaming on public lands. Um, and that does not include the number that are in holding facilities. There's, I think, over 50,000 now in holding facilities. So, you know, there's like over 100,000 horses that are just unaccounted for, basically, um, that don't really have a purpose right now. And there, but they have someone has to feed them and look after them. Right. That That is. Um, through our taxpayer money. Yeah, and, and uh, this again goes goes to the problem, and and much of what gets brought up is why, if there's no end, if there's not not really like an end game, why are these animals being paid for day after day if they're not going to be really used for anything? And I, my understanding is that the although there is an adoption system there, that can't keep up with the number of horses being brought in. No, no, definitely not. 
Do you, ha- Catherine? Do you have kind of? Uh, I mean, this is obviously is a problem that needs to be resolved, and the project that you guys are working on to raise awareness of this problem uh, is hopefully going to bring it to the forefront of people's minds, so that a solution can be found. But do you have a view on what could be done here? Because the thing that I find really interesting here is that um, the conversation so far has been very pragmatic. But you are all, you all love horses. You all work with them all the time and you ride horses, but you're very aware of the, the issue at hand here and, and maybe the difficult choices that need to be made. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the hard thing is we all obviously love horses, but sometimes, I mean, sometimes you kind of have to do hard things in order to make things better in the long run. And I think part of part of where we are at with wild horses right now comes from a really well-intentioned place of trying to protect them because there was a period of time where they were getting uh, hunted down and rounded up a lot and really getting sent off to slaughter and their numbers were dwindling at one point in time. And some well-meaning people introduced these laws to protect them and they ended up kind of putting them in this uncomfortable place where they're both protected and also because of the protection, they're suffering because their populations are growing too much and they're kind of hurting themselves because they're overgrazing. And, you know, so what we thought was good intentions ended up backfiring a little bit. So I think the three of us, while we do love horses, we kind of have this bigger picture idea of it, seeing that maybe we might have to do some hard things in order for things to be better in the long run, which is kind of the reverse of what happened before, if that makes sense. Yeah. Lu- Louisa, can you speak uh, a little bit to the kind of environmental impact? I mean, we touched on it, but the real hard environmental impact that this number of, of wild horses out there on these public lands is actually doing. And what we, we talked also about the, the conflict with ranches, but what the the conflict with other wildlife is and what we are seeing, what is the impact that we're visually seeing from it? Because I I know just from, actually, when I was watching Charles's film, I mean, even for even for them themselves, for the horses themselves, there's, there's not enough water and there's not enough food. So I imagine that the other wild animals that live there as well are also really struggling sure. because of this like yeah. overburden of population. Yeah, um, kind of what Caroline touched on, it's just overgrazing, you know, it's kind of creating this like dust bowl in areas that they're living um, because they need to move to find water and find food. And they're also competing, especially with other um, ungulates in the area, um, like deer. So deer are unable to find food. um, And most of the horses are living in areas like Nevada where you'll see it's super desolate because they're also competing, like I said, with humans, uh, which is interesting. Um, So they're kind of getting pushed into desert like areas where they can't survive very well um, because they're eating themselves out of certain areas. And they're also getting pushed out by, um, you know, buildings and people spreading pretty far out into areas as well. And then we also have a really weird way of, especially compared to Europe, you know, we have private land and then we have public land. So all these horses are getting pushed onto BLM or public lands 
Um, and just define BLM for people outside the U.S. Yeah, so BLM um, it stands for Bureau of Land Management, and those are areas that are um, it's considered to be public land, um, and it's taken care of by the government. But um, in a sense, these wild mustangs are getting pushed onto areas of this um, public land that are just super desolate without any water and without any resources. So they're dying off um, in those areas and then moving into different areas to find food. So it's kind of creating like a pattern of them depleting resources in areas. And just to um, go off of that a little bit too, Louisa, because there's so much overgrazing, there's also like invasive um, plant species that are coming in because that isn't being eaten by those animals. So things like cheatgrass are getting more prominent out West um, because of the overgrazing. And that's like a really non-nutritious food. So like, I don't think any animal can really survive off of cheatgrass. So that in turn affects everything down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it really takes over quickly. I know that uh, one of the issues with um, the uh, conservation of your sagebrush ecosystems is the invasion of cheatgrass as well. Uh, so yeah, that's it's interesting that that for an invasive species, this overgrazing actually helps that proliferate, which is a whole other problem and quite difficult to reverse once it takes hold. I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, something that you just brought up there was just was making me think when you were talking about like the animal rights element of it of being uh, upset or, or riled about the idea of horses going to the sl- going to slaughter and being used for whatever that might be. Um, pet food was the previous example. It's interesting to me that that is more of a focus than the actual uh, sort of animal welfare of these animals in the place that they're existing, where where somebody can be really outraged as to the the outcome of uh, an animal's life ending, but not be as outraged about it living in, in really either a, uh, a I, I, don't want to, I was going to say terrible environment when they're um, in, in pens, but I can't really, I haven't seen them, so I, I can't speak to that. But I, I imagine it must, it's obviously not as, not as comfortable, wild and free as when they're just out on the open plain. But even when they're, they're free, they don't have the resources and these horses are starving in many cases and are really not in, in, in great shape. And this sort of contradiction between people being outraged by the human interaction at ending an animal's life, but not being as outraged about these animals suffering, doesn't quite compute in my mind. As as somebody who, uh, well, you know, I hunt and I fish, and I have a a good sense of animal husbandry just from keeping not not a, I mean, I live on the edge of a farm, so I see you know farmers on a daily basis dealing with their livestock, but I've kept a lot of uh, animals o- over the years as well. And I have this understanding of sort of the the lesser evil and removing suffering where possible. Right. It's, uh, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult and interesting contradiction that, yeah, I think part of it honestly comes from the fact that, Right now, a lot of the people who are so, you know, passionate about this issue, there's a lot of people, so I'm in Los Angeles, there's a lot of people in California and LA that are like, so rightfully moved by Mustangs because they are beautiful animals. 
And yet they know so little about the realities of it because it's so out of sight here. We don't have run-ins with Mustangs on a daily basis. Uh, And that goes for most of America. Most Americans don't have run-ins with Mustangs or see them firsthand or know anything other than, you know, the kind of myth around them. So it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Whereas, you know, okay, if it's in dog food, it must have suffered to be there. So like, that's a hard fact of like, that's not good. But if you don't know what's going on in the wild, quote unquote wild, or these pens, you might not know the reality of it. And so you might think that that's better because, well, they're not dog food. So I think it's kind of this, uh, I can't find the right word, but it, it, like they just don't, it's out of sight, out of mind. So our hope by having this project is to kind of show people the whole picture so that they can maybe make a better judgment in terms of what you were saying. Like sometimes it's better to just make that decision in order for the general welfare to be improved rather than just drawing it out. Yeah, no, no, I see that. And a lot of it does come down to to education and understanding. I'm seeing some parallels here with the way that you're just describing that with uh, some parts of the world making decisions on like trade bans, for example, to affect things that are happening in other countries. Africa is one that uh, comes up quite a lot when they're talking about trade bans of uh, particular a- animal products. But without from the outside with very little understanding, it sounds like a great idea. Oh, we can help save a species by banning an international trade on it without really understanding what's going on the ground and the people who who live there and the environment that these, these animals live in and how those systems are actually funded sometimes relies on this sustainable trade. But on a surface value of it, just seeing these charismatic wild animals I can understand why it's easy to make uh, this emotional connection and decision that making those difficult choices is something that doesn't seem necessary and seems cruel when why can everything not just live wild and free so yeah that's that was one of the things that I found fascinating about what you're hoping to achieve when you take this amazing journey, and I want you to talk about this journey a little bit more now, is to really uncover this story in a very open and honest way. Because in my mind, education and really showing people what's happening on the ground is the only real way to have these discussions in a constructive manner. Because without all of the pieces, without all of the information, you can't really expect people uh, to be able to uh, view th- view the these very complex topics in a complete way. Um, tell me a little bit more about this journey because it sounds like the kind I I am I can't ride but I have ridden. But the, this sounds like the kind of journey that I would love to be a part of because it sounds fantastic. Thirty days on horseback, 40. going through the wilderness. Forty days, yeah. <laughs> going through the wilderness. Uh, d- tell me a little bit more about this route and and how you're gonna. Uh, keep supplies for that long and what the whole process is going to be like because there's three of you but you're there's going to be 12 horses so yeah just talk me through that i'm fascinated sure um yes so we will be leaving next october to go on 40 days um in the wilderness through central wyoming and northern colorado 
and we're going to be riding through HMA areas, which are um, areas where Mustangs live on public lands. Um, so it'll be very interesting to be riding Mustangs while also uh, seeing Mustangs as we're in their natural state. Um, so in terms of, you know, packing out this trip and doing, you know, having enough food and re-rationing, we'll pretty much bring everything we need in terms of gear with us. Um, and we'll pack out all the food before we leave. And then we'll have re-ration spots. So we'll have places where, um, like we'll have a support team outside the field. Um, and then they'll meet us in places probably uh, once a week or once every two weeks to re-ration us with food, gear, um, food for the horses, whatever we need um, in terms of gear at the time. Um, yeah, and then the filming will be pretty interesting too. I don't really know m as much about that side because they're going to have to take a bunch of equipment with them as well, um, which will also, they'll need new batteries to come into the field. I, I know this challenge. Yeah, no, <laughs> so, um, I'm just like less clear on that. It seems really hard though. <laughs> it's possible. It's, I mean, the, the, the great thing about technology now with filming is that everything is a lot smaller than it used to be. And a lot of things can be charged just by like USB from battery packs. I did like 12 days in just by myself filming in the mountains of Mongolia, just with two small battery packs with solar panels, just topping everything up. And I only, I was able to keep up with the, the top up. So I was only ever like two batteries down at a time. So it is possible. Um, so I, I just want to clarify something. So you're going to adopt these 12 horses and you're going to be riding, are these the ones that you're also going to be riding on this journey, I assume? Yes, mm -hmm. they are. So what's that whole process like? Because you're adopting essentially a wild horse. How long does it take to break a horse into a place that you can actually ride it on a journey like that? Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting because originally when we started this whole thing, we had wanted to adopt very, you know, like wild feral horses and train them from the ground up. And we actually decided in the end that we more wanted to focus on the problem Um the Mustang problem and spend more time, um, on that than like the, the training process wasn't as important for us. Um, so we're actually going to be buying Mustangs that are already started, um, in their training. Um, but to answer your question uh, in terms of starting a horse training and being able to ride it, um, it really depends on the horse. Um, some of them, you know, it takes just a couple of days to be able to, you know, touch the horse. And sometimes it takes up to weeks to be able to touch the horse. So it just totally depends. I mean, you know, just like people, they have personalities and some are more trusting than others. So it can be a pretty lengthy process or it can be um, not so lengthy. Um, but we, yeah, we'll be buying our horses um, already trained um, to a certain extent, but not, um, probably not very trained. We're trying to buy younger horses so they won't have a ton of experience. So when, when are you doing that? We are buying them in May. Um, there's an auction in Wyoming at this um, place called the Wyoming Honor Farm. And they actually, it's an inmate program. Um, so the inmates help train the horses. Um, and they do this big auction. And um, I think it's twice a year, but we'll go in May and adopt our horses then. Oh, okay. So then you've got from May through to October 
to for you to get comfortable with the horses and the horses to get comfortable with you. Yeah, yep. So we are we are currently in or right at the start of December. So you if everything had gone to plan, this journey would have been would have been over now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you would have been uh, I guess you would have been planning on uh putting the documentary together and what have you. Has anything changed? Has apart from the, the time frame, has any of your plans changed or has the extra time allowed you to think about things that you maybe wouldn't have been able to do or you're going to do things differently just with the the extra time to think about it? I think the main things that have changed have really just been on the more of the production and filming side, to be honest. I don't, I don't think our, I mean, Caroline and Louisa, you can jump in here too. Um, But I think just like having more time for our producer to like plan for us, which she, I think was very good. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't think, I think other than that, like our trip itself hasn't really changed. Um, yeah, I think other than that, it's pretty, pretty much the same. I mean, we will, one big change obviously is just global, the pandemic. So being careful about that, but luckily our trip is so small that we should be able to do it really safely without having to worry too much about it. So it hasn't really changed it. It's just more of an awareness in our heads. Sure. Well, hopefully by then we're we're all vaccinated, so you yeah. won't have to worry about it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's my hope. So the travel's a little bit easier than it has been. Um, what was the uh, the process like? So once you decided that you were going to do the, you wanted to do this journey and make this documentary to tell this story, who did you approach and how did you go about trying to turn this into a documentary? Because I know being that that's our world that I'm also involved in, like how difficult that can be, not only pulling in the right people, because it's so important that you actually have cohesion between the people who are in a film and the people who are behind the cameras and and producing it and everything, but also just trying to fund something like that is an absolute nightmare. How have you guys gone about it? Yeah, I... I mean, that's definitely, the three of us are not film people at all. We're just horse people and we thought this would be a fun project and something important to talk about. And we feel like we have gotten so lucky because I was introduced to someone here in LA who is an amazing director and he was really interested in our project and he's not a horseman at all, but he's really passionate about helping us and he thought our idea was great. So we started working with him. Uh, he helped us make our pitch video for our crowdfunding campaign because we knew we which is lovely. Yeah, I really enjoyed you. that. It's really well done. Yeah, we. I mean, like I said, he is so talented. He basically we planned it out together. We went out to Wyoming last summer to film that. Uh, put that together for us. We used it for our Seed and Spark campaign. So we did a crowdfunding through them, uh, which. We raised. What is Seed and Spark? I don't actually know. So uh, Seed and Spark is it's kind of like a GoFundMe or like a Kickstarter, uh, but it's specifically for filmmakers. And the one of the cool things about them is they let you keep your money if you get get to eighty percent of your goal. So with some of the other ones, you have to get a hundred percent or you get nothing. And with Seed and Spark, uh, it's film oriented, and also you can get to only eighty percent and still get your money. So for a film like ours, we knew we needed a lot because not only is the filming part expensive, we also have to feed and care for 11 horses and get all the gear to ride them and gear for us. So we have a very uh, large budget. So we were lucky enough to be able to raise 
52 or so thousand dollars through that campaign, which was that's amazing. amazing. Yeah, our community. Well done. Thank you. Our community is amazing. We just like every time we have something like that or interact with our community, we're just blown away and so grateful. How did how on earth did you promote it? Uh, to so many, you know, clearly to so many people to raise that those kind of funds. Was it just through going on podcasts and writing articles and social media? Is that how you did it? That and then Instagram has been huge, which Catherine is like Instagram wizard. She posts these amazing posts. And so, <laughs> what <laughs> is your Instagram handle? Uh, it's at Women in the Wilderness Film with underscores between every word. Okay. But I'm sure if you search Women in the Wilderness Film, it'll come up. Uh, but that was a huge one for us. And then just honestly, between the three of us, we had this huge Google doc. Again, Catherine is like amazingly organized. So we have all these Google spreadsheets of like, who do we know? How do we know them? Uh, Have we reached out and just doing a ton of emails just saying like, Hey, you know, I know you're interested in horses or I know you're interested in the outdoors or whatever it may be. And then explaining our project and hoping that that person would support us and in a lot of instances they did which was amazing and we're very very grateful um and just continuing what feels like you know the universe kind of nudging us in the right direction is we were introduced to this amazing producer in LA also and she has amazing connections connected us to like a good DP who I think he lives in Wyoming he's just awesome like outdoorsman is like ready to jump into this at any moment so just through this web of connections, we've managed to assemble this team that is just really cohesive and passionate. And we all have a lot of fun when we're together. So it's a good sign because, you know, we're going to be spending a lot of time together. So we have to get along. And luckily we do. Yeah, it's, that's, a really, that's a really important factor when you're yeah. spending <laughs> so much time out without much support. Yeah, if people want to find out a bit more about what you guys are doing, and is it still possible to support the project? Yes, absolutely. We uh, are partnered with Wyoming PBS. Uh, they're they're our fiscal sponsor. The TV channel. PBS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, they're our fiscal sponsor. So you can donate through them and get like a tax write off, and then you know the funds will go to us. That's one way. We have some information about that on our website, which is womeninthewildernessfilm.com. If people want to get involved that way, that's amazing. We definitely need all the help we can get. We also have a matching campaign uh, with an anonymous donor that we started back in, I believe, the end of February or March, but we paused it because of COVID. Uh, We are hoping to restart that in around February, hopefully, of 2021. Uh, And that's a great opportunity to donate because everything you donate will be matched dollar for dollar up to $10,000. So we have the opportunity to raise 20,000 additional more dollars. And I know it sounds like a lot, but for all the filmmakers out there, you know how expensive even stuff like batteries are and lenses. Oh, it adds up. (laughs) It's insane. And then on top of it, all these horses and their shoes and saddles and replacement gear and you know sleeping bags for us it just it goes on and on so uh we have those opportunities coming up so if people want to donate i mean every dollar every penny is so appreciated um and we also can take gear if someone's like oh i've got a saddle sitting around that i don't use oh that's Maybe cool I could use it you know if someone like that is out there hears this and wants to reach out we would love to hear from you well if it's yeah. if 
most people I know who are into horses have a lot of gear so I think there probably will be some <laughs> gear out there that you can yeah. either have or uh, or loan for the period of time and especially up in uh, up in the north of of the US there's a lot of people who are into their horses I spend quite a bit mm -hmm. of time in Montana and everybody there everyone I know there seems to ride so. yeah <laughs> which is great um just as a, a way to kind of bring this conversation to a close and uh, a question to kind of all of you um you're going to make this and you're going to put it out there for the world to see. Is there, you know, what is your kind of hope for the future of, of wild horses and how we treat them, how we view them as a society? Because it, it certainly appears to me from the conversation that I've just had with you and from the reading of, of Charles's work in, in Modern Huntsman, plus the, uh, the couple of films that do exist that have, have talked about it a little bit, that, you know, it feels incredibly sad and it feels incredibly cruel that we are not finding a solution quicker than we, we currently are. Because ultimately, there are a lot of animals out there suffering, I would say, quite unnecessarily, just because we can't come to a consensus of how to manage this situation. And I think it, well, one of the biggest mistakes is the idea that this is a situation that cannot be managed you know this requires the input from humans to to solve because in some ways we have caused it do you guys have a have a kind of a view on what your hope is once you get the end and get to the end and sort of show the world the the, the most honest reality of the situation that you can yeah i think i think my hope is that one just just kind of like you said um is that people just learn and are educated about what's going on i think there's just a lot of people that don't know what the problem is or that there is a problem. Um, so my, my hope is that people are educated um, and educated from all sides, you know, that they understand why ranchers are upset, why animal rights activists are upset, why the BLM is having such a hard time managing it. Um, so I think, I think just education is a huge, huge piece. And in terms of the horses, I just hope that, um, you know, having them live on land and starving to death is, is not an, something that we want to see and, and we don't really, you know, want to see them standing in holding pens um, because the whole purpose of protecting these horses is that they're living wild and free and happy. Um, so I, I would hope that we can just find some balance in between, in between the two of those. Yeah, I agree. I think, I don't know, like, like you said, a lot of this suffering is unnecessary and it is, you know, humans brought the horse back to North America. So we do have a responsibility to these animals. So I guess my hope is that, like Kevin said, I, I want our, our viewers to have a more well-rounded understanding so that maybe they can understand, okay, I, you know, it makes me sad, you know, for example, if some horses have to be put down, but I understand why. Or, you know, there's other options too, besides we keep talking about that, but there's also things like, you know, birth control for mares where it's temporary dart that you can shoot and they are infertile for like three to five years or something. And then they're refertile after that. So there are loads of population control options out there so that hopefully someone watches this film and they say, okay, I understand why they're doing that. Uh, I see that the future will be more sustainable because of it. And then ultimately, you know, years down the line, I hope that there is a better balance where horses can exist, 
uh, natural wildlife out there, the deer, other animals can exist and humans can have respect for that. And just kind of more of a balanced thing with understanding and compassion on all sides. That's fantastic. Uh, Louisa, I guess you get, you get the final word on this. Um, I think that there just is so much emotion um, behind this issue. And I hope after people watch our film that they'll know why they feel that certain emotion or they have some sort of standpoint on the issue. Uh, the more you learn, you know, the more you know about this issue. Um, and I just hope people can walk away and have an educated conversation about it. I, I don't know how long it will take, you know, to have a solution um, because it's such a huge issue and there's so many sides. But like Caroline had mentioned, I think PZP is a really amazing way to go. Um, and it's also humane. And I think it's easier to swallow for especially these people that like we all believe in um, the Mustang being the spirit, spirit of the West um, and kind of having a majestic appeal. I think PZP is an easy one to swallow. Um, and I hope that, you know, they could create more government jobs and pay people to stay with certain herds and dart horses. Um, just, you know, in a more humane way. But I also see the other sides where we might need a few different solutions to the problem, not just one. Yeah, it often is the way with these complex situations is that there isn't there isn't a singular solution that can really help solve the problem, and it it'll it's like a multi pronged pronged attack to really get to the bottom of it. Because I suppose ultimately, as it stands, it seems that the population is too high anyway. So even if you're able to stabilize it through uh, contraceptive methods, we still need to tackle the overabundance of the population that is, exists right now as it is anyway. Uh, all of you, Catherine, Caroline, Louisa, it's been fantastic to speak to you and really intriguing. And what a project. I, I love this. I love this kind of thing. It's uh, it's the kind of documentary filmmaking that I personally like. enjoy being involved in myself. It's the kind of stories that I like watching. So thank you very much for sharing those insights with, with me and, and with our listeners today. And I wish you all the best of success as we get into 2021 and you can go forth and, and make this happen. And, and then maybe what we can do is after you've done the journey and the trip, you can come back on the podcast and tell us all about how it went <laughs> in preparation for the film coming out in the months, uh, in the months afterwards. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.